Romans chapter 8, going through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Bible, Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Speaking of God the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Reading those verses, wondering what they mean, looking to you, Lord, to explain them. We know and believe that your word changes us. It molds us. It fashions us. And Father, I pray that no one, including myself today, will leave the service without a heart that's been cut by the scalpel's knife, your knife, Lord. You're the perfect surgeon. You know just how to circumcise our heart, to, to do an operation on it. I need it, Lord. We do, all of us. That's why we come here today. Lord, I pray that for our church. I pray that for every church meeting in the city of Boston and the surrounding area this morning or today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So I am hoping that since the last time we were in Romans chapter 8, it's been a few weeks, that some of you made verse 32 your life verse. I hope that some of you typed up the verse on your computer, you printed it out, you taped the verse over a couple of the doors of your home. I hope the verse, since we last talked about it, has been branded on your soul and you've been chewing on it, meditating on it. God will burn it on your soul if you're willing and you say, do it, Lord. Burn this verse on my soul. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Remember the imagery of a castle. Imagine you're a king or a queen, you're inside a castle with, oh, a thousand of your subjects surrounded by 
thousands upon thousands of enemy soldiers, enemies that hate you and your subject and subjects and everything that you stand for. They want to come in and destroy you and all the people within your walls. And someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know, I know what will make them all go away. Take your son, your only son, bind him up, lower him down the wall, deliver him over to the enemy to do with him whatever they will. That'll satisfy them. Such an idea is inconceivable. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable that anyone would ever come up with an idea like that, much less for a king to do it. But God did it. Such was his love for you. God did it. He lowered his son, his only son, bound down the castle wall, delivered him over to those who hated him to do to him whatever it was that they willed. When the Roman governor presented Jesus to the multitude, they cried out, crucify him. And the Roman governor, Pilate, said, but he's an innocent man, to which they responded even louder, crucify him and let his blood be on us and our children. Matthew 27, verse 5. And it says that the Roman governor delivered him to be crucified. Same exact word as in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. God delivered him. It says, verse 32, He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he did that, will he not give us all things? No one gave that idea to God. It was God's idea. So unimaginable, inconceivable, and unthinkable, the Bible says in 1 Peter that angels were stunned to discover, were shocked to see Jesus lying on the cross. But God so loved you that he lowered his son down the wall as a substitute for you I hope no one in this room is deceived. You were under a death sentence. Romans 6 verse 23 says, sin's payment is death. And it also says this in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It says, the Lord, the Lord God, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And that means you. (laughs) Don't be deceived. Don't be lulled into a false gospel. From heaven's perspective, your sin 
any sin, any violation by you of God's law is an incredibly serious thing. It's a grave thing. And the punishment is death. Can we go back, Dennis, to the previous verse? The punishment, sin's payment is death. That's God's idea. He's that holy. But God so loved you that he lowered his son down the wall into enemy hands that you would not have to die. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give you all things? Now, notice, I don't want to miss this. It says here that God has freely given you all things. But before he freely gave you all things, what does it say that he gave you? Someone shout it out. He gave you Jesus. He gave you his son. If you're taking notes, just underline those two words, with him. It, it, it says in verse 32, again, how shall he not with him, with Jesus, freely give you all things? In other words, you can say with full assurance, Jesus is mine, You can actually tell someone that. Jesus Christ is mine. There's a hymn, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine, which millions of, peoples have, uh, of, of people have sung over the, over the last hundred years. Jesus is yours. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. If you believe what that verse says, if you believe it, if you live and breathe that verse, you will go out and you will do anything for God. You'll do anything for him. God calls all his children to do hard things, hard things. No exceptions. You're not going to do those hard things unless you believe this verse. Unless you live it and breathe it. That God who did not spare his only son but delivered him down the wall to bloodthirsty souls to do whatever they will to him. How will he not for you give you all things? He will. So that you can do, that you can go out and do that hard thing that God has called you to. Next verse, verse 33. Romans 8, 33. Read it along with me. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, that first verse, 
who shall bring a charge against God's elect. Verse 33, I, I prefer this translation, uh, who shall bring an accusation against God's elect, meaning who shall bring an accusation against you? That's what it's talking about. Who shall bring an accusation against you? It is God who justifies. Now, I cannot possibly overemphasize how loaded this chapter is. I mean, that's why we spent the last three months in this one chapter. I, I cannot overemphasize the, how loaded this chapter is with promises for you, Christian. With, with, with promises for a new life, an abundant life, an overcoming of a hard life. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are, and are called according to his purpose. How do you get better than that promise? Well, maybe verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, and that's you, he also predestined, he wrote your destiny to be conformed into the image of his son. How can you possibly get better than that? We'll read the next verse, verse 29, and um, rather verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called, those he called, he justified, and those he justified, these also he glorified, meaning a guarantee for heaven, for you. How do you get better than that? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for you. How will he not with him freely give you all things? And how might you do outdo that one? We'll try verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who will accuse you? It is God who justifies. This promise is so life-changing, and, 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 and my prayer is that you're going to get it as we walk through this verse. Who is, the, who is he who accuses you? It's none of their business. God's business. That's God's business. He justifies. Now, what, is, what does it mean for God to justify this is review. We've been studying this since Romans chapter 5. When you're a Christian, when you become a Christian, you need to learn a new vocabulary. One of the vocabulary words, remember vocabulary and whatever, second grade, third grade? When you get to the Bible, you have to learn a new vocabulary. When the Bible says God justifies, it means God's looking at you at the time you believe what Jesus did for you on the cross and his resurrection, as soon as you believe, the Bible says God justifies you. Meaning he says to you, you're not guilty, you're qualified, I, God, now receive you into an everlasting relationship with me. Which begins at this moment, by the way. It doesn't begin when you get to heaven. It begins at the very instant that you Give over your life to that man, that God-man who bled and died for you. So when the verse says, 
Who shall bring, can we go back to the verse, uh, Dennis? Who shall bring an accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. What the verse is saying is this. If someone brings an accusation against you, it's none of their business. It's God's business. You're his business from the time you're justified forward. From the time before that, you're in deep trouble with God, you and your sin. From the time after, it's God's business when anyone brings an accusation against you. Now, this is good news. This is revolutionary news to some of us. Why is that? Because we are plagued, some of us, night and day, thinking about others' opinions of us, obsessed about the approval of man, about what they think about us. We're plagued with this. You are not talented enough. You're not good enough at what you do. You're not smart enough. You're not getting enough done. You're not beautiful enough. There's a lot of that in this world. You're not coordinated enough. You're not old enough. You're too old. You're not experienced enough. You don't have the personality. You don't have the friends. You don't have the money. You don't have the body shape. You're not loving enough. You're not patient enough. You're not happy enough. You're not outgoing enough. You're not serving others enough. You're not dedicated enough. You're not a good enough father, a good enough mother, a good enough sister, brother, uh, son or daughter. You're not a good enough friend. You're not a good enough worker. You're not a good enough neighbor. You fall short. Our mind becomes a haunt of horrors with all those, with all that noise, with all those voices. Others tell you this stuff, or they think it. We tell ourselves this stuff, or the devil does. If the others don't, certainly he will. And we're fragile. God in heaven knows. I'm a fragile dude. At pastor's conferences, we are regularly reminded of a statistic. The statistic is this. They've done research on why pastors give up and leave their church. Research indicates that on average, a pastor resigns because just seven people in their church disapprove of them. Seven professional critics, so discouraging they leave. Now, if the truth be told, and I'm being honest with you, all it takes is one critic for me to want to run. I really mean that. One person telling you that you don't measure up, one person thinking and sharing with others that you have no business doing what you're doing. We're that fragile. But listen, and this is so important. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you 
are obedient to the Word of God. Whether it's one person, seven people, or 700, you're not supposed to flee. You're not supposed to run. You're supposed to bring that accusation against you. You're supposed to bring it to the Lord and get His opinion because it's no one's business other than His, ultimately. It's God's call and God's call alone. Who shall bring an accusation against God's elect? Dennis, can we have that? It is God who justifies. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit. He also wrote Romans chapter 8, didn't he? It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, but he who judges me is the Lord. Now let's pause, let's hit the pause button. None of this means that when someone criticizing you, criticizes you or points out something in your life, your boss or spouse or person who thought was your friend, someone in church, that you're supposed to throw up your hands and say, I don't care what you think. God is my judge. You know, I know some people like that. They're really scary. They're, they're frightening. When you, when you meet someone like that, just turn around and just run as fast as you can. I don't care what anyone thinks about me. So what that they think I'm a jerk? Let them think that. I don't care. You know, you do see this immature behavior in the body of Christ. I care what God thinks, no one else. Uh, listen, if you're going around saying or even thinking something like that, you're going to get smacked. And it's not going to be by a human being. It's going to be by your precious, loving, gracious Heavenly Father, he's going to smack you upside the head. That's not a child, a child of God of his behaves. And that's not what this verse is saying at all. What, what, when, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's not saying at all. These verses are saying ultimately that when all is said and done, at the end of the day, if the whole entire world is pointing their finger at you, if you take whatever that is that they're pointing your fingers about and you go to God and God says, that's nonsense, that means you cannot take it to heart. You cannot. Or you will go take yourself into a, just a downward spiral of discouragement and you will not do those hard things for God that he has called you to do. The truth of the matter is, of course, for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a few years, you know that though God is a gracious, loving, merciful, abounding in goodness Father, he's also relentlessly honest with you. And if you open up the word of God and you expose your heart to it every day, oh, he's going to be real honest with you. Why? 
Well, we've already read the promise in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, it's another way of saying those whom he saved, that means you, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That's his agenda for your life. He's not gonna, get, so it's not up to everybody else to bring into that place, it's the Lord. Now, sometimes he does use people. Sometimes he uses people who are really annoying to conform us into his image. But at the end of the day, we don't, we can't take it to heart what they're thinking. Who shall bring an accusation against God's elect, verse 33? No one. It's God who justifies. So here's the deal. You must let God be your defender. He is. The Bible teaches that God is your defense. He's your vindicator. In other words, if, if, if you're misunderstood, you just need to, by people, you just need to let it go. You cannot be running around defending yourself against everything that is said about you against every misunderstanding. Uh, if you do that, you will blow your witness, your testimony for God, your, your fruitfulness for God, you, you, and you'll look like a fool. You leave that to the Lord, especially in the case of the devil. In the Bible, Satan, is called the accuser of the brethren, of you. And he doesn't do it just once in a while. He does it all the time. Revelation 12.10, speaking of Satan, the devil, or his host of demonic angels. We live in a spiritual world, folks. We live in a spiritual world an invisible, where there's an invisible reality where the accuser of our brethren accuses them before our God day and night. The Bible says that while Satan cannot know your thoughts, he does He's really intelligent, and he's been observing humankind for at least 6,000 years, and he may have some really good educated guesses what you're thinking, but he just doesn't know your thoughts. However, clear as clear could be that Satan can affect your thought life, or he, yes, he can affect it. Book of Ephesians, it speaks of fiery darts from the evil one coming at you against which you must put up the shield of faith, the armor of God. That's speaking of accusations of the devil. And if you think you can defend yourself against the devil, you are so crazy deceived. You're a Christian and you did that? Satan says to you, you're on your way to church. Why? You know where you were last week. 
You know what you said. You know what the state of your marriage is right now. You know how you treat your children. You're praying to God after what happened last night, that website that you went into? You're in ministry at your church with all those thoughts in your mind, those lustful thoughts and imaginations, those jealous thoughts, those angry thoughts, those bitter thoughts, those boastful thoughts. You? You think you're going to heaven? You? What about that abortion? What about that long record of sexual immorality with all that stuff you have stolen, those people you've hurt, that woman, that man you so grievously violated? The devil sees all those things. The devil sees a lot of those things. Your coworker, your boss, your family member. They see all the ways that you fall short and they make sure you know about it. You're not good enough, you're not loving enough, you're a hypocrite. That's what they see. That's not what God sees. Read verse 34 with me. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. God sees a bleeding son on the cross. He sees that blood flowing down that has covered all your sins. Your sins that were red as scarlet are now as white as snow. That's what God sees. It's none of Satan's business. Ultimately, it's none of anyone's business other than God. It is God who justifies. It's God's opinion who matters. Continue reading in verse 34. Let's start again at the beginning. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, it is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Meaning God, God the Father is in heaven. God the Son is interceding for you. Meaning he's praying for you. He's arguing your case. And there's a wonderful, wonderful picture of this when Jesus was here walking around the earth. In Luke chapter 5, verse 30 we read this. It says, some Pharisees, meaning accusers. That's what they did. They, 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 they were accusers of the brethren and of Jesus. The Pharisees and some of their leaders of the law of Moses grumbled to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with those tax collectors and other sinners? Jesus answered, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to invite good people to turn to God. I came to invite sinners. See how Jesus, he just gets right up there. He gets in between the accusation 
and you. Next time that thought comes in, or that real zinging arrow, flaming arrow comes in, and in your inbox, text, whatever, someone speaks to you, convincing you that you're not good, you say to him, I know I'm not good. Jesus didn't come to invite good people. He came to invite sinners like me. That's what that verse says. That's what Jesus says. If you're good, can we get the last part of that up again, Dennis? If you're good, he didn't come for you. That's what Jesus says. If you think you're good, he didn't come to save you. That's powerful stuff there. That's heavy stuff too. And you just tell the devil, I know I'm not good. I know I did that stuff. Jesus didn't come to invite good people. He came to invite sinners like me. Next thing you do is quote Romans 8.33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Not you, devil. It is God who justifies. At that point, you should shut up and leave everything else to Jesus because you don't want to go too long talking with the devil. Now, so what does this look like in real life? This is unbelievably powerful stuff. Now, I shared this on Tuesday night a couple weeks ago at the, uh, at the going through the book of Judges on Tuesday night. I'm teaching. But I want to bring it up again. I usually uh, don't like to use... Uh, an illustration at both places, but I'm reading a book by, on Sojourner Truth. How many of you have heard of Sojourner Truth? So her birth name was Isabella. She was born like 1790 or 18, towards the very end of the 18th century. She was born a slave, and she became an unbelievable force in the anti-slavery movement. Illiterate. Sojourner truth. And she was actually a slave in New York, and um, I love history. And uh, it's interesting to read history books like this because what you learn is, although slavery in many in many, in many respects, was the treatment of the slaves was worse in the South. In the North, it had some peculiarities that made it, in other ways, way worse than the South. One was, in, in, in the South, the plantations were large. There were many uh, slaves on each plantation. In the North, usually people just owned two or three slaves, which meant that your kids were sold right away from you when they were five, six, or seven years old and they were gone. It also means that your wife or your husband could be sold after your marriage. So she was born to her father's third wife. The first two had been sold. And she, in New York, in the state of New York, slavery was abolished for adults, not for children. In 1827, children had to serve as slaves. There's like, unfortunately, hate to use the term, but 
grandfathered in, I don't know what you would say, they had to be a slave until they were 20 to 25 years old. So in 1826, um, she, she left. And I first, I first want to read about her salvation experience. Now, this is from an illiterate woman, but it, might, it could just as well, I could just as well take this page and plaster them from Romans 1 to 8. It is shocking. So this is her, her, her story, and she's, she's narrating it to someone else. It says, God revealed himself to her, Isabella, with all the suddenness of a flash of lightning, showing her in the twinkling of an eye that he, God, was over all the universe, that there was no place where God was not. She was instantly conscious of her great sin, her soul, which seemed, but, which seemed like one mass of lies, shrunk back, aghast at the awful look of him, the God who, had for, who, who she had formerly talked to as if he, had, he was a being, a human being, just like her. And now she would fain hide herself into the bowels of the earth to have escaped his terrible presence. That's Romans chapter 1. This is not an imaginary God that she had. This was the real God. She was having a real experience. Romans chapter 1-2 could have been written right out of there. She feared certain awful annihilation that she should receive even one more look from this God. She wanted to talk to this God, to mollify him, meaning to appease him, that her, but her vileness, her own vileness, utterly forbid it. She felt worthless before God's immensity, cowering in her degradation. She wished for an intercessor. She prayed for someone to intercede, someone to plead against her extinction. And after all this spiritual uh, turmoil came the blessed answer, she felt a friend had come to shield her from the burning son of God. In the, it, it says, in the peaceful aftermath of this tournament, um, she found an ally. Who are you, she asked, as in a vision. Her vision was of Jesus, who loved her, who had always loved her. She would stand, he would stand between as Isabella and God's fury. Isabella said, when Jesus came, I could go and dwell with him as a dear friend. I was radiantly happy. My, uh, my heart was uh, full of joy and gladness, and I had the liberating presence of Jesus. Now, remember, we're talking about Romans 8, and what really does this mean? What really does it mean uh, when it says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And by the way, I really admire this author. It does not appear they're a Christian, but they're being completely honest with the narrative. The author goes on to say, 
Isabella, speaking of sojourner truth, would speak later of being baptized by the Holy Spirit, experiencing a second birth of entire sanctification, meaning entirely set apart by God. She had been born again with an assurance of salvation that gave her self-confidence to, to oppose the rich and the powerful of the world. Listen to this. As a vulnerable young woman, deprived of her parents, she was sold away when she was eight, as were all her uh, siblings, deprived of her parents, overworked, neglected, beaten, sexually abused, she had approached this world with a vivid sense of her worthlessness. Everyone, anyone ever feel that? Your worthlessness. That's how she, that's all she knew. She was convinced of the insuperable barriers that separated her from the prominent people that she was a slave for. But now she had a friend in Jesus whom she likened to a soul-protecting fortress uh, um, who gave her a power above the battlements of fear. That's her quote. The assurance of sanctification and God's Constant support released Isabella from the crippling conviction that she was nothing. She discovered a new means of power, what Pentecostals call the power of the Spirit that redressed the balance between someone poor and black and female and her rich white masters. She was the first person to walk into a court, the first black person male or female, to walk into a court. And she did because, she walked into a court because her son, who was sold to someone in New York, who still owed someone in New York 20 years, was sold to someone in Alabama where slavery was still illegal. That was illegal to do in New York. She actually went into a court and she won. And, and then she just went on to be a superstar. <laughs> she, 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 she went on. Why? What, 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 do you realize the, that most slaves after the war, after the Civil War, or even in New York, before the Civil War, who were freed, they just continued on being slaves. Why? Because that's what they were told they were their whole life. You're a slave and I'm not. But this woman, she got, she was illiterate, but, but Romans chapters one through eight was branded on her soul. Who is it who brings an accusation against God's elect? Can we have that against Dennis? Again, Dennis? It is God who justifies. So just, just giving her um, this, this confidence of uh, uh, that, to, to, what did I say? To go out and do real hard things. I want to read one more thing here. There's a, it, says, it says her, her mental orientation, which we know was, was her spiritual orientation, as well, as well as the ideals of gender divided leading African Americans from Isabella. So now it's going to compare the educated black Americans, and there were, particularly in New York City. New York City had uh, more blacks at the turn of the 19th century than any other city except Charleston. 
they, the educated African Americans, took their cues from the public realm, from politics and business. She heeded to the voice of the Holy Spirit. As men, the educated African Americans moved into the larger world and the imperatives of politics drove them. Later, they would call themselves representative men. Upstanding middle-class black women lecturers would join them in the anti-slavery circuit. For this minority of urban black educated people, most noted in historical accounts, public life and politics was the attraction. History, however, has ignored an untold number of women, such as Isabella, for whom the politics of race did not supply the meaning to life. The meaning of life for Isabella was, was supplied by the God who saved her. So, so just, to, and, 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 and what did, how did we begin this message? God calls us to do hard things. Christian, he's called you to do hard things. Every single child of God has been called to do hard things. And that's why when we read verse 32 of Romans, which says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He'll give you all things to do his hard things. And then the next verse, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Because it's God who justifies. It's only his opinion that matters. You talk about empowering someone. There you have it. You know, in other countries right now, where the word of God is illegal, they're imprisoning Christians at an unprecedented rate. You know why? <laughs> because people start reading the Bible like Sojourner Truth. Oh man, the governments are going to feel some pain. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in other countries who are under that kind of oppression. Meanwhile, the Lord supremely for you, he wants you to believe and live and breathe these verses. I'm going to call the worship team up at this point. I want to remind everybody that all the uh, Bible studies this week, two seven groups, the small groups, the women's study, the men's study, the home fellowships, and also Tuesday night, no Tuesday night service we're all meeting on Friday night to celebrate communion. Address is in the bulletin. It's where we usually uh, meet on Tuesday nights in Lower Roxbury. To focus on the blood of Christ. Oh, what that blood has purchased you. We've been talking about it all morning. What that blood has purchased you in, in that, that resurrection where Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He, he pours out all this powerful stuff. But still we need to come into the place in our life like Isabella did. We quit fooling ourselves. 
God is holy, and he is furiously angry at sin. We may laugh at sin, not him. Jesus Christ became an intercessor force. He got in the middle. He paid the price that we deserved for sinning. He got in the middle. He's, he's the middle. He's the bridge between us, us and the Lord. And then w- that we can actually receive Jesus into our life and go to God. And there's perfect peace, perfect grace, perfect love. If you've never done that. I didn't, until I was in my early 20s, I had never said, okay, God, I'm done with being my own God. Where I'm in control of all my choices and I'm giving over control to you. If you've never done that, I'd like you to come up during worship. If you've been asked to pray as a prayer partner, if you could come up now. And so we're just going to worship here, and we are going to pray with you if you come up. If you could rise now, standing this last worship song. But I also want to bring... I also just want to to ask any of you who who are man, you, you, your mind has become a haunt of horrors. You're thinking you're not good enough, and a lot of times the accusations we're making against ourselves. But remember. Bible says. It says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? We, not us. We're not allowed to do that. It is God who justifies. Whether it's you bringing the accusation against yourself, that you fall short, you don't measure up, you're not dedicated enough, you're not happy enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not good enough, or whether it's someone else, or whether it's the devil. We, like tens of thousands of Christians who went before us, like Sojourner Truth, don't have to live with that kind of warfare, or, that, or, or, or we don't have to live defeated in that kind of warfare. There's victory. So if you're, if you're in that place and you'd like to come up to pray during the closing worship song, please do. So let's worship, and if you need to pray, uh, please come up. Father, we just thank you for every everything that you've done in us today, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue it now. We know that you've called us, Lord, to, into this life where we, you're conforming us into the image of your Son, sent us out, Lord, to do those hard things. You've promised that in those things we can say, Jesus is mine. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for your son, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the cross.